My name is Deanna, calling from Detroit, Michigan. I am an obese person. Uh, I am also a professional dancer. Uh, I avoided the doctor for eight years because of consistent dismissiveness. I went to a chiropractor for a dance injury and uh, was met with um, doubt that the injury was, in fact, dance-related. <laughs> and it happened because I did a drop split. So the ability to even be seen fully as a human being, let alone as a patient, has been really hard for me. Luckily, I found a great doctor who understands that my weight is only one of many factors. The American Medical Association has recognized obesity as a disease since 2013, a disease that the CDC reports nearly 42 percent of Americans have. But only one percent of doctors are trained in treating obesity. That's according to a study in the National Library of Medicine, the world's largest biomedical library. A long-standing bias against patients diagnosed with obesity has affected doctors' ability to help patients seek treatment and access routine medical care. In one survey of physicians, nearly half agreed they have a negative reaction to people with obesity and characterize them as lazy or weak. After the break, we discuss the barriers to seeking treatment for obesity and routine medical care. We also discuss the role doctors play in that. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. To join future conversations or just to let us know what you think, tweet us at 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. Life can be overwhelming, and many are burned out without even knowing it. Struggling with work or any of life's roles can lead to a lack of motivation and detachment. Prioritize your mental health by talking with someone. BetterHelp Online Therapy offers video, phone, and live chat sessions with a professional therapist, and it's more affordable than in-person therapy. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash 1A. Let's jump into the conversation. Joining us is Dr. Fatima Cody-Stanford. She's a leading obesity medicine specialist at Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School. Dr. Stanford, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. First of all, take us through diagnosing obesity. What makes it a disease? So I'm going to, well, those are two different questions. You didn't realize it, but I will hopefully answer them both. Um, So first of all, when we look at how obesity is classified or defined, it uses a um, a thing called BMI and BMI stands for body mass index, but the BMI is problematic. And let me explain why the BMI takes into account height and weight, and it gives us an indirect measure of adiposity. Adiposity means fat and fat distribution. The reason why it's been utilized is because it's easy. It's a crude measure that we can use to determine one's weight status. But the BMI or body mass index, which tells us if someone is underweight, has normal weight status, overweight or obesity, um, has been applied and actually excludes certain key groups, groups like groups that I belong to, those that are um, of racial and ethnic minority groups here in the United States. So the BMI is technically a screening tool and not a diagnostic tool, but it is used as a diagnostic tool to determine whether someone has the disease of obesity. Now, going into your second question, which is why is it a disease? And the reason it's a disease is because there's actually pathophysiology in the body that governs how much we eat and how much we store. And that happens all within the brain. 
the brain has signaling down certain key pathways to tell it to eat more, store more, or eat less and store less. And when we look at treatment modalities to address the disease, they're focused on the brain to change how the brain sees weight. If the BMI is, as I'm hearing you describe it, an incomplete or a very crude way of measuring health, why, why is it the standard? You know, I think it's just because it's easy and it's been there and it's it's so wide scale. It's not something we just use here in the U.S. This is a national and international metric. So if you look at the World Health Organization and go to their website right now, they will use the BMI. If you go to any country and look at what metric is being used to define weight status, it is the body mass index. I say that we have to do better. We need to go beyond BMI. We need to use other factors and we need to go beneath the skin surface, not just look at someone's weight and size and assume that one's health status is poor because of their size. Now, it can give us some information. So if someone happens to fall with severe obesity by the screening tool, we want to do some deeper analyses. We want to look at their cardiometabolic health. We want to look at cholesterol. We want to look at their um, fatty liver disease or things of this sort. We want to look beneath the surface. But a lot of times what happens in medicine and healthcare amongst doctors, amongst the lay population, is we look at a person and we make all of these judgments based upon both our implicit and explicit bias. Explicit bias being that bias we know we have. And then that implicit bias, the bias we don't know that we have, that unfortunately, believe it or not, weight bias on average starts at 32 months of age here in the United States. Wow. Part of what I'm also hearing you say is that by using the BMI as as a easy standard for health, people who don't fall within the range of obesity may also miss out on some important information if they're considered thin. You are entirely right. Um, And this is the conversation we don't often have, right? So as much as we have these biases towards individuals that have this disease of obesity, the people that happen to be lean in appearance, we assume they're the picture of health. When we haven't dug, dug beneath the skin surface, we haven't dug beneath the hood or gone under the hood, if you're thinking about a car analogy, right? To do an investigation to see, is this a car that's really just shiny on the outside and is a clunker? You know, I'm going to use, um, you know, like how we would think about that. We have to do that deep dive regardless of weight status. Um, but we do tend to hyper-focus on those with excess weight. And yes, excess weight can definitely lead to over 200 chronic diseases, but not every single person has the same combination of potential. And we can't make assumptions without doing um, you know, a deeper dive. When we look at obesity, treating obesity specifically, what options are available now? Absolutely. So I'm going to take you through kind of four main categories of what we think about when we look at the treatment of overweight and obesity. And we always start really kind of the base of the pyramid, which is lifestyle modifications. So lifestyle modifications are the things we think to do when we have um, excess weight, you know, improve our diet, um, improve our exercise quality and duration, look at sleep, um, look at and see if we have any other issues that may be precluding our ability to be effective in the lifestyle realm. In that lifestyle realm, we kind of also add in behavioral therapy, which may include work with a psychologist or a social worker, 
surrounding other issues that may compound the disease of obesity, like depression, bipolar disorder, um, these types of things um, that may um, also cause problems, things like binge eating disorder, for example. Now, when we get beyond this kind of lifestyle and behavioral realm, we can consider the use of medications, what we call anti-obesity pharmacotherapy. These are medications that often act on different parts of the brain to change how the brain sees weight. Now, there are several um, medications that are approved for use here in the United States, the first of which was approved back in 1959 by the FDA, um, and several that have come on the market more recently with really high levels of efficacy. And by that, I mean a, a tendency to promote high total body weight loss. But currently, based upon my own paper that published in the Mayo Clinic Proceedings in October of last year, only 1% of persons that meet criteria for medications for the treatment of the chronic relapsing remitting disease of obesity get access to those medication or actually being treated with such. Beyond medications, we have devices, um, devices that may be put in place sometimes short term um, to address obesity. And then finally, what is the gold standard, particularly for those that have severe obesity or those with moderate obesity with obesity related disease, which is metabolic and bariatric surgery. Unfortunately, people see that as an easy way out when actually it is by far to date the most effective tool in changing that brain gut communication and shifting weight into a different category. We'll get more into medications a little later in the hour. But first, we spoke to Dr. Caroline Apovian at Brigham and Women's Hospital this week about the need she sees for treating obesity. I can't hire enough doctors, PAs, and NPs to help me. Essentially, every single patient that that primary care see could be sent to us. We've been here for a year and a half, and our waiting list is about 500 or so. How many patients do you see, Dr. Stanford, every day, and and what's the age range? So my patients range from 2 to 90, um, and it varies on how many I see a a given day. Um, My current patient panel is over 2,000 patients. Um, unfortunately, at the National Weight Center, our wait list um, is over 3,000 patients waiting to be seen. Um, and unfortunately, I think that's a disservice, but a lot of it has to do to minimal training um, with regards to physicians, NPs, PAs, et cetera, on the disease of obesity. And so kind of an influx of people waiting to be seen by those of us that are um, trained or certified to do so. We got this email from Marie who says, my weight is a big barrier to getting proper health care. I can't count how many times I've been told to lose weight before they will treat any symptoms. I now have panic attacks and severe anxiety about seeking any medical care. Dr. Stanford, what's the biggest misunderstanding physicians have when treating patients with obesity for the, for the disease and just generally? Well, I'm going to go based upon a meeting I had with um, people that I thought were trained in obesity just yesterday. I think that we have this presumption that the person that has this disease, first of all, is not doing enough or they're maybe not telling us the truth about what they're doing in the the lifestyle modification realm. And and that here lies our biases. Um, People still are, despite the fact that the AMA has recognized obesity as a disease since 2013, people don't treat it as such. People treat it as a lifestyle choice, something that they've done to themselves and that they deserve to be whatever they are because you know, if they just worked harder, if they just ate less and exercised more, then they'd be better. Problem is that's wrong and it doesn't reflect what we know about the science of this disease. And joining us now is Lulu Garcia Navarro, former NPR host and now host of a new podcast called First Person from New York Times Opinion. Hey, Lulu. 
Hey, Jen. Now, you wrote about your struggle with obesity on Twitter. We just heard from Dr. Stanford about some of the different treatment options that are available. Which of those options had you tried and for how long? Well, I want to say one thing, first of all, which is that Dr. Stanford actually changed my life. Um, I interviewed her during the pandemic on why people who suffer uh, from obesity should get priority for the vaccine. And it wasn't until she explained that obesity is a disease that I started my journey into understanding my own issue. Um, And that speaks to the power of a sort of knowledgeable and empathetic doctor. I have suffered from obesity my entire life. Um, I have always struggled with my weight um, and it has consumed me in ways that are difficult to explain. And what was so amazing about my interaction with Dr. Stanford is that I had been told all my life through society, through what I'd read, that the problem is us. If we were only better, more restrained, we wouldn't have this problem. And I did not fully understand that I had a condition. I thought it was a personal failure. Dr. Stanford, I I have to ask you what it's like to hear Lulu say that that you changed her life. Well, it's very emotional. Um, People aren't used to seeing really my emotion, I think. Um, I do this work every day, all day, 90 plus hours a week because I care. And I want my patients that have this disease to be treated with the dignity and respect that they deserve. Unfortunately, this is a rare situation when they actually are treated with dignity and respect and have people that understand the disease and are there and willing to give them the help that I think is so deserved. So it, it, it causes a sense of, of heaviness to, um, to hear Lulu say this. I, I had no idea when I did that interview that it was um, influential to her in that way. And um, to hear that she's been able to make a transition and to change her life view based upon how she saw herself is really, I think, a win-win. We'll make sure to tweet out a link to that interview at 1A. Lulu, eventually you sought medication. Was that an option you'd considered before? I had no idea that it was an option. You know, during the pandemic, my weight really started to spiral uh, further out of control. I was struggling with depression and I talked to my doctor about getting help. Um, I knew very little about weight loss medication, frankly. Uh, She mentioned that it might help, but she gave me all these caveats. I just looked at our correspondence this morning from that time, and basically she wrote that I needed to get behavioral coaching, join a costly weight loss program, and if I showed dedication and results, then she would prescribe me the medication because these medications, and I'm quoting here, only work when combined with maximum lifestyle therapy. Um, So she was putting all these bars to me actually getting this medication. I did what she suggested. I tried a variety of apps and programs. And let me say, I am no newbie to trying to lose weight. It has been a struggle, as I've said, all my life. I've done absolutely everything at different times to try and get my weight under control. And this time it just didn't work. I tried and failed, tried and failed. I gave up, I gained more weight and I was desperate. And I went back to the doctor and she told me I hadn't proven that I could stick to a program. And so she was denying me the medication. And I can't tell you how humiliated I felt, how desperate. It sent me into a huge spiral, and I felt it was all my fault. Lulu, eventually you did get a prescription for its mm-hmm. semaglutide. I'm not sure I'm saying that correctly. It's an anti-diabetic medication for, for weight management. What did it take to finally get that prescription? 
Well, it was after my discussion with Dr. Cody. Um, and then um, during the summer, my mother sent me news about the FDA authorizing a new weight loss drug um, that's semaglutide. I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, and then I started reading. And what I read was shocking, um, that over 40% of people in this country suffer from obesity or being overweight. And as we heard Dr. Stanford say, only 1% or less have access to medication, that these medications work regardless often of what expensive program you're on or you're not on. And, you know, the hardest thing to bear was that I had fallen prey to something very common, which is this sort of, I'm going to call it an anti-fat bias in the medical industry. And so to make a long story short, I ended up sending her a series of articles on said bias uh, and about the medication and essentially educating her. And that shouldn't be my job. I'm asking for medical care. Um, I happen to be a journalist who knows how to do my research and advocate for myself, but so few people are able to do what I did and they shouldn't have to. Say to tweet, I'm 120 pounds, 5'8", and diabetic, but the diabetes management programs focus on weight and I have nothing to lose. And based on BMI, I'm labeled healthy and can't partake in such programs just to help me manage my diet. Nitwitty66 tweets, doctors need to know more about medications than just what they learn from the individuals selling the drugs, as well as the differences in how they affect larger individuals and how long those meds take to fully metabolize in people with higher fat levels. Uh, Dr. Stanford, I'd love for you to speak to that tweet specifically. What do doctors need to know about diagnosing these, these drugs? Yeah, first of all, I think we learn nothing about medications and how they work in individuals with um, higher, um, you know, adipose or a higher levels of fat. Um, it's not something that's taught. I think that the curricula in medical schools needs to change. Currently, there is no standard teaching surrounding um, overweight obesity medications that we can use for obesity medications that may cause obesity. And that's problematic. Um, if you look at um, the American Board um, of Medical Specialties and look at all of the specialties that certify physicians in this country, there is no consistent education or requirements to know about obesity on any medical board currently to date, nor under the USMLE, which is the United States Medical Licensing Exam. So there's no education. You know, if the doctors aren't being educated, aren't being asked to know this to get certified, then it must not be important, right? Yet we're talking about you know, over 40% of adults. And I, I want to note that that is based on 2018 numbers. Those numbers have not been updated. We are definitely in 2022. So I'm sure those numbers are much more pronounced, particularly in the aftermath or actually in the current COVID-19 pandemic. Lulu, how are you feeling, feeling now? I feel great. I lost 70 pounds, but more importantly, my cholesterol, my blood pressure, Everything is now looking great. And, you know, I want to live longer so I can be with my daughter and my family. And this has helped me. Um, and so for me, it's been, as I said, absolutely life changing. Um, I'm not a doctor. I'm not here to say if someone should or shouldn't be on medication. Um, but I think that having this option after a lifetime of trying so many things on being inside the revolving door of what, what I like to call the weight loss industrial complex um, has really sort of changed my perspective. And I now look at my issues with obesity as something indeed that has to be managed, you know, for the rest of my life. Lulu Garcia Navarro, host of New York Times Opinion Podcast, First Person. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. We appreciate it. 
Thank you, Jen. And again, thank you, Dr. Stanford. Oh, absolutely. We're discussing bias in the medical field against patients diagnosed with obesity or who are overweight. Remember to join future conversations, download our 1A Vox Pop app, and leave us a message. We'll be back with more from you and our guests in just a moment. Let's get back to bias in the medical field against patients with obesity. Dr. Stanford, I quickly want to touch on the FDA's recent approval of two weight loss drugs, uh, Saxinda in 2020 and Wigovi in 2021. How do these drugs work? Yeah, so actually, um, Saxinda was approved before then. Um, It was actually earlier. Um, Wigovi was approved later, but it was approved for kids in 2020 Mm -hmm. um, for adults, actually, um, three years earlier. But let's talk about this type of medication. This is what we call a GLP-1 agonist or a glucagon-like peptide 1 agonist. And so these medications, particularly which are injectable medications, um, the first Saxinda is a daily injection um, for approved for anyone age 12 and above with obesity. And then the second being a weekly injection, um, that's the semaglutide or semaglutide that you've heard um, about a little bit earlier um, from Lulu. These medications act in, in four primary ways in the body. Number one, they stimulate a pathway of the brain called the POMC pathway. You don't have to remember what that is, but you have to remember that that's the area of the brain that tells us to eat less and store less. So it upregulates that pathway of the brain. Number two, what it does is it slows gastric emptying, or so as things move through the GI tract slower, you can imagine you stay full longer. So that means that if you eat, you're like, wow, I'm full pretty quickly. I only ate a fourth of my food here. Um, it improves insulin secretion. So these medications were first approved for the treatment of diabetes prior to being um, approved for the treatment of obesity, both of the medications. So Saxenda or Liraglutide was the first approved as Victoza. Um, and the um, Wigovi that we hear about was a first approved by Ozempic. And you might know those commercials about being magic. Oh, oh, it's magic. I don't know if it's magic, but it is kind of, kind of exciting. The fourth way in how this medication works is that it improves your browning of your adipose tissue. Let me explain what that means. Adipose is fat and the tissue typically looks white. Think about kind of like when you go get chicken from the store and you kind of are looking at that fat. When it's brown, um, if you guys were looking at me, you would see that I'm a brown person. Um, When it's brown, you actually burn more at rest and with activity. So you improve your energy expenditure. So the GLP-1 agonists, both liraglutide and semaglutide or semaglutide, depending on who's pronouncing it, work in those four key ways. And the side effects for drugs like this? Absolutely. I always tell my patients, and I think if any of them are listening to me, they'll probably laugh. I say the number one, the number two, the number 20 side effect for this medication is nausea. Obviously, you know, the reason why I say that is just because close to half of individuals will experience some nausea with the medications. Um, I would say the second most common side effect is constipation much because we're slowing that movement through the GI tract, you can imagine things might get a little backed up. So just think of it as kind of a plumbing type of situation. We may have to to do things to help things um, get moving in the right direction. Um, After that, believe it or not, diarrhea. So, you know, there are some people that may have diarrhea associated with it. Even though there's a slowing, there are occasionally um, diarrhea. The things that are, are more significant in terms of the more significant side effects would be something like developing pancreatitis which is an inflammation within the pancreas. This is a rare situation, less than 1% of the time, but notice I didn't say 0%. And there are certain patients that we would never use these medications in. Those are those patients with medullary thyroid cancer and patients that have a history of multiple endocrine neoplasia. 
those are the patients that would be contraindicated for use of this medication at any time for the treatment of their obesity. I want to focus in on medical bias against patients with obesity and bring another voice into the conversation, Camila Weems. She's with the Association of American Medical Colleges. It's rolling out new standards for diversity, equity, and inclusion that include best practices on treating patients who are diagnosed as overweight or obese. Camila, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So what are the existing standards for treating patients who are diagnosed as overweight or obese for overall health issues? So um, right now, so these competencies are are really aimed at um, looking at how we're treating patients um, regardless of of their identity. So they're they're covering topics that are looking at mitigating bias, self-reflection, and the role that plays. So some of the existing standards um, are some competencies that were actually developed Um, in 2017, when the AAMC was a part of a collaborative effort with several other organizations to develop provider competencies for the prevention and management of of obesity. These new ones are really looking specifically at um, what is the role of the physician and um, how does that personal biases affect um, clinical decision-making. So what's new in the standards that you're working on now? What, What can we expect? So what's new is it's really looking at um, what is the individual physician's role in treating patients and how do their individual biases um, affect how they treat patients? Um, What is the role of self-reflection? How are they practicing uh, cultural humility? Um, And how do all of these things contribute overall to uh, really the patient outcomes and, um, and and the decisions that they're making for their patients? So how do you hope these new standards will improve the experience of people with obesity or who are overweight at the doctor's office? You know, what we're hoping, one, we recognize that um, we really need to be doing a better job of integrating obesity concepts into the curriculum. And so, you know, we're, we're doing better now than we were 10 years ago, but there's still a lot more to do. Uh, we recognize that this really is a complex problem. And so what these competencies are aiming to do is to help physicians develop generalizable skills and habits to treat all patients. Um, Obesity is, you know, one set of disparities and uh, biases that that come up in terms of how physicians treat patients. And so we're looking broadly and hoping that these competencies, like I said, develop really generalizable skills and habits. We got this email from Anne who says, I am a nurse who sees obese patients in the hospital every day. These patients are admitted for other reasons, not obesity per se. I want to be more understanding and helpful to patients who are obese. What role do nurses play? and where can they go to educate themselves? Dr. Stanford, your thoughts? Yeah, well, first of all, I'm going to change our language because I'm having many heart attacks here. So first of all, we want to eliminate the word obese. Obese is a label. Obesity is a disease. So we want to use people first language, a person with obesity, a person with overweight. Um, So I'm going to change that, number one. Um, 
So to answer the question about nursing and how nursing can learn, there are several organizations that are doing a lot to um, really educate. Um, I would say that there are two key professional organizations where people can get education. Number one, the Obesity Society, which is an international organization um, that um, focuses on research and treatment of obesity. Um, That would be one area, um, one organization I would take a look at. The Obesity Medicine Association is another organization that seeks to educate individuals um, regardless of their um, training background, meaning MD versus um, nurse versus PA, et cetera. And then I would say also the the key other organization I would align with is the Obesity Action Coalition. This is actually a patient-facing organization, over, I think, 80,000 individuals with obesity that come together, some of whom are health professionals, doctors, nurses, et cetera. Um, And they come together to advocate on behalf of themselves, but also to get educated about the disease from the patient vantage point, because the patients inform us of everything. So hopefully that's helpful for those that are seeking um, additional um, education. I would be remiss not to bring up a course that I do teach in here at Harvard. Um, It's the Blackburn course for obesity um, that is actually coming up. I think I'm teaching it on Friday. Um, So it's a wonderful course that we do Um, that really covers the breadth of of the entire disease of obesity from basic sciences to um, clinical and then translational, but with a focus on how do you care for that patient in front of you. Well, it takes me to this email from Heather who says, I have a bariatric consult and intake meeting for weight management in a month. I so appreciate this conversation today. What advice would Dr. Stanford give to someone going into a first appointment of this type? What are some red flags to look for? Well, first, hopefully they're using the right language and treating you with dignity and respect. If they're not, I would head out the door and go somewhere else. There there are enough surgeons to go around and only 2% of patients that meet criteria for metabolic and bariatric surgery are actually getting that treatment. So there there are enough surgeons here to to do the work that needs to be done. Um, I would say the key things you want to be paying attention to is, are they looking at this as a longitudinal program? We know obesity is a chronic relapsing, remitting disease. Are you just going to come in, you know, do your surgery, and then they just let you kind of fly? You know, think of it like as a, you know, you're in the nest and I just let you go and then I never see you again. That's not what we're looking for. We recognize that patients need care over the course of time. Before I came on the air this morning, I saw patients that had bariatric surgery back in 2005, back in 99. I don't need to see them with the same level of frequency as those that are going to surgery, you know, next week, but this does require chronic um, um, evaluation, looking for things like vitamin and mineral deficiencies, any issues that can arise in the late postoperative course of someone that had you know, surgery 17 years ago, like my first patient today. So just make sure that they're thinking longitudinally, not just, you know, you come in, you do the surgery, and then they forget about you. Because what I do see often is weight regain. And often here again, the surgeons and doctors will blame the patient for their being their fault for the weight regain. What we do know is the further you get from surgery, those hormones that were causing you to defend a high set point for weight start to creep back in. And so you start to notice that your body is regaining and you're noticing things, cravings, desires, um, things may change. And there are people like me that can come in and help so that you don't go and get back to where you first started before you took this journey um, to consider bariatric surgery. We're talking to Dr. Fatima Cody-Stanford, a leading obesity medicine specialist, and Camila Weems with the Association of American Medical Colleges. I'm Jen White. You're listening to 1A. 
we got this email from Jane who says, so many comments exactly mirror my experience. Is there a correct process to report my doctor for his mistreatment of me? Camila, how will these new standards be implemented and, and integrated into future doctors' practices? Does it provide more clear guidance on a patient's ability to say, hey, the standard of care I'm receiving from you is not what it should be? Yeah, I, I think that one of the things that, that this gets to is a doctor being willing to um, understand and, and be a little bit more uh, humble and have some cultural humility. Um, and so what we're hoping this will do is help educators design and, and adapt their curriculum to help them think about um, how this needs to be uh, integrated into the curriculum. So we're, we're not asking it to be additive, but also thinking about um, uh, individual professional development. So um, how do doctors think about how they're taking care of their patients? Um, these are really not intended to be high stakes for assessment or accreditation, um, but really helping to um, think about how we're looking at gaps in the curriculum and, and gaps in the training and looking at these set of standards and this set of competencies and, at, and I helping to identify where those gaps exist. Any last advice for, for providers right now who are listening ab- about how they should treat patients with obesity or who are overweight? Absolutely. Number one, obesity is a disease. Let's treat patients with the disease that they have. Let's not neglect them. Let's not discredit them. Let's not treat them as though they are second-class citizens because of this disease. I said language matters. These are patients with obesity. Let's get rid of the word morbid, which we haven't talked about. We don't call it morbid cancer. We don't call it morbid COVID-19. Let's start calling it morbid obesity and just call it what it is, severe obesity that we can treat. And number three, patients matter. Patients matter regardless of their size. The dignity and respect that you'd want to receive as a doctor, as a nurse or whomever, sitting right there in front of your own doctor Let's give that to this, this patient population in the same way. That's Dr. Fatima Cody-Stanford at Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School. Also with us, Camila Weems with the Association of American Medical Colleges. We also heard from Lulu Garcia-Navarro, host at New York Times Opinion. Thanks, everybody. Today's producers were Sophia Alvarez-Boyd and Mia Estrada. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. We'll talk again tomorrow. This is 1A.